Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. This is Lori LeBay, the host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, and I'm so glad that you joined us today. I'm not sure if you were hearing any garbledness on your end, but I was on mine, and hopefully that won't be won't be with us. But this is Internet Radio, and if one thing um, dementia teaches us, it's tolerance and to just keep moving along. So that's what we're going to do. Um, for those of you that are new to the show, because we get a lot of new listeners every week, and I have to thank all of you for sharing the show with others because that's how people find out about us. Um, But Alzheimer's Speaks is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We truly believe that by providing and joining forces together and sharing knowledge that we can um, change our dementia care culture. We can go ahead and remove stigmas and we can have a normal conversation and life with dementia. So again, thank you all so much for uh, for joining the conversation today. It's going to be, uh, I think, a really interesting show that we're having called "Witnessing Alzheimer's," and uh, and that goes for Alzheimer's and other dementias. You know, today we can really help people understand some of the true needs of this disease and remove the myths. And again, get rid of those dang stigmas that isolate people by just having conversations like we're going to have. And at our core, Alzheimer's speaks believes collaboratively that we can win this battle against dementia. And I, I know it's working because of all of your likes. You have had such a huge impact on us. We were honored um, last year, Dr. Oz in ShareCare named Alzheimer's Speaks as the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's disease, which is absolutely incredible. And that happened because of our social media presence. You know, so many times we think um, people, you know, aren't talking about this, so there's no need to discuss this unless it's our immediate family who we're dealing with or, you know, if it's a doctor uh, that we're talking to or maybe we're a professional and we'll share it with our coworkers. But bottom line is this disease touches just about every single person in the world in some um, fashion. And so your likes on Facebook, you're sharing it with your LinkedIn group, your ability to tweet if you can do that, push it out, you know, in your Google friends. You just never know who needs a lifeline for additional support. And Alzheimer's Speaks really wants to help connect people and hear voices 
at all levels who are dealing with dementia because um, together we're, we're going to be able to make a difference. We're going to be able to remove that isolation, and we're going to get these conversations happening, which are so, so critical. So today, as we, as we have our conversation, I want to remind you that you can easily join in with us. You can use your chat box, or you can also um, call in live to the show. And that number is 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. And by doing that, you can actually join the conversation. We always love to hear. Or maybe you think that you could be um, a guest at some time. We talk to people who actually are diagnosed with this disease, to family caregivers, to medical professionals and researchers, to advocates, um, to authors, movie producers, music. If you have something to say about dementia, we want to hear from you. You know, what, what do you see the needs being? It's very important that we, that we all share this information. Um, now, before I introduce our first guest, I do just want to mention a few organizations because people are always wondering how do they get directed and where do they go. And there's so many great organizations available. Alzheimer's Speak does have a resource directory. If you go to our website, you can search there, and it's a collaborative resource directory. So that means it's not just our voice, it's everybody's voice. So if you have a business, a product, a service, or a tool, and you want to become part of that, just click at the gold button up top that says um, that you want to share that you care, and it has partnering options. You just have to register. But for right now, I'm just going to highlight a few. Alzheimer's Disease International is basically the association of all the Alzheimer's associations around the world. So if you're looking to find an Alzheimer's association and support group near you, um, you know, go to alz.co.uk, and from there you'll be able to hook up with anybody around the world. There's also great research and resources there, as well as once you go to your local chapter, you'll find wonderful information there as well. Um, there's also the Louis Body Association, and the Louis Body Association has made their website very easy. It's just lbda.org. LDDA.org, and they are um, an incredible organization that works specifically with um, Lewy body dementia. There's also um, the Association for uh, Frontal Temporal Lobe, the National Aphasia Association, um, which are wonderful resources for you as well. Um, the Purple Angel we'll be talking about, that's the new global symbol that is really catching fire. Uh, it's going crazy over in the U.K., and it's really starting to catch fire now over in the U.S. here. And um, then the Alzheimer's Studies um, program, uh, you can find them as the Alzheimer's Team on Facebook if you're a Facebook person, or you can go to Alzheimer's Studies, and there you'll be able to find out information on the um, uh, TAU trial that they, that they have available and they would love you to be part of. That's all I want to say for for kind of some sprinkling some dust of, of different uh, 
information for you here. So let's go ahead and talk to our first guest. Um, Evan Gesman is a, a gerontologist, and he was in um, a nurse training program until he got injured. And so now he's had to pull back from that. But he still um, works a lot with uh, private patients, and he is a multilinguist and interpreter and a six-time um, cancer survivor himself. So he knows a lot about giving care and um, how to, you know, how to deal with people. He's got a, a ton of insight that he wants to share with us. So welcome, Evan. How are you today? Good, Lori. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, I'm excited to, to have you with us. You know, you, you've been in the business and, and um, experienced so many um, life-changing events for yourself. Um, which I, I really truly believe Alzheimer's disease and dementia is one of those life-changing events uh, when it when it strikes people. So I'm very interested in talking with you. But let's first, um, if you wouldn't mind sharing with our with our audience, maybe some of the behavioral um, types and characteristics, the you know, with dementia that might cause you know be a cause for concern. Um, when people are just kind of starting out trying to figure out, is this a problem or not? What are some of the signs? Okay, with uh, over my 30 years that I've dealt with, some of the common signs that I've spotted in family members and professionals have pointed out to me, uh, memory loss and attitude loss, appetite loss, and just not knowing uh, where they are with their lives and unsure of who they are and basically just overall confused and or adamant. Okay. So you're seeing some um, definite personality traits then um, changing yeah. along along with this. I think that that's really common. And, and don't you think one of the, the, the biggest... Um, Changes I, I think that affects a lot of people is either anger or depression, um, and sometimes both. They are tied in together, and there could be before the dementia actually sets in, Lori, there could be an actual base that has been established, and the dementia is just making the situation a lot worse than it is. Mhm. Well, in, in any time you're dealing with loss, I think that's you know a normal time for any of us to feel a little depressed um, and to get a little angry because we all you know, especially here in America, I mean, it's all about being independent and you know striving for more and better. And when that's taken away from you or pulled back, um, that's that's not something that we readily like to accept in our lives. Now, you've been a, a six-time cancer survivor, so you've been through, I would imagine, multiple losses in terms of just kind of having to restructure, you know, your life not only physically but mentally and emotionally um, to get through that. Can, do you see any overlaps between um, dementia and, and what you've gone through with your cancer? I have, Lori, let me explain how, that each time 
that I have had to stop giving me a chance to look at my life. It's given me a chance to, rather than being a pity party, to say, I can overcome this. It's given me a chance to, and I'm going to tie this into the dementia as well, it's given me a chance. Uh, I'll, for example, I've learned a, a, every time I've had a cancer, I've learned a new foreign language. Now, a person with dementia gets frustrated in the same way because there's different, uh, once dementia sets in, they're um, with different people. It could be an on and off thing. And I've noticed that, too, is that they're trying to adapt. They don't know what's going on. They don't know why it's going on, just like the cancers. They they didn't know what caused in the, some of these cancers, and it made the New England Journal, uh, made the Journal of Medicine. So it's an adjustment each time, and there's confusion. But when you have dementia, that clouds the thought, because having dementia, you don't have all your faculties as I would without dementia or anyone without dementia. So they're fighting a battle on multiple sides because they don't have control over their thoughts. They have the disease that the disease is doing the speaking. So when you hear that person, and if you were to listen to them like I do with my clients, I try to put myself in their shoes, is it the person talking or is it the illness talking? So it's much more complicated for a person with dementia. Yeah, it, it, it the you know, things just aren't connecting. You're correct, and it is. It, it there's definitely some some um, added obstacles there. But I like what you said about you know with a diagnosis of cancer. I mean, that's got to be devastating, and just I mean, it's not something anybody wants to hear. Um, same with the diagnosis of dementia. But what I liked was that you said, you know, it gave me a chance to review my life and, you know, to kind of put things in perspective again. And we don't hear too many six-time cancer survivors. Um, you know, that's a lot of fortitude and a lot of stamina um, in order to, you know, push forward, you know, with that. And now, did I hear you correctly that you said, you know, each time you got diagnosed, that's when you decided to learn a new language? Is that correct? Yes, and also, Lori, I've been, my life's been given back to me actually 11 times. I've been hit by a car three times, 9-11, and a couple other events. So uh, I have more than nine lives. But the thing is, I wanted to give back, Lori, and I want, I didn't want to be in a pity party because I had a chance to take hold of something and just charge forth and say, I can do this, but not on my own strength. Believe me, it wasn't. And there, I could turn bad and turn it into good that could actually help who are hurting with what I have and also adds more, more, um, more wisdom to what I have. So my attitude is that of resiliency and being able to say, hey, you know something, I can beat this and I'm going to make the most of it because there's so much in life to live for, Lori. Well, that's, that's a, a, I think, a really good philosophy to have is, you know, we all have obstacles. Some of them are bigger than others. And, um, you know, attitude has such an impact in terms of, of how, we, how we live our life, how we connect to others. 
um, you know, having that sense of gratitude for what we do have, not just um, but pity party, like you said, for, for what we've lost. And I think that that can frame things um, really well. We have some great examples of, you know, who's kind of just pulled themselves up from the bootstraps, um, you know, from Norm McNamara, who has been doing incredible things around the world with his new global Purple Angel project um, for the new symbol for dementia. Um, we've got Michael Ellenbogen, you know, here in the U.S., along with um, Harry Urban and Rick Phelps and Steve Ponis and Richard Taylor and Dina Dotson. Um, these are some really strong, strong voices, um, you know, that have dementia and aren't going to let that stop them. You know, they're they're not going to deny it, but they're not going to just lay down and and say, oh, woe is me. They, they're up, standing up, making a difference, which is is a wonderful, wonderful thing to to be able to see and witness um, and, and watch them grow. It's probably one of the most fun things that that I get to be able to to do and and see in my own job is to be able to witness all of these voices coming together. And social media has just made that so much easier. Um, and I think it's important for not only the person who is diagnosed, but for those caring um, for them. You know, everybody needs an outlet to be able to figure out what's going on and, um, you know, who can they talk to. Um, because we all we all need to vent in our life one way or the other. And just because you're ill doesn't mean that that stops. Um, but in many cases, um, sad to say it does, People people tend to you know, walk out of your life a little bit. Did you see that at all with your cancer? Were, well, did you lose friends or family? Was it just too overwhelming for some of them? Or, or were you one of the lucky ones where um, the support continued on for you? Well, I was very fortunate because I have, I'm in three honor societies and I'm in a fraternity and I'm in so many preservation groups that, there were enough people and where I hooked up medically especially that um, actually some were overwhelmed and you have that, just like if it was a dementia thing. And Mm -hmm. I was very fortunate, Lori, that I had people that I did take the time when I did express myself. But what I had to do, most of it was myself, and use my inner reserves to be able to put together, are you still there? I'm sorry, to put together and say, you know something, this is what I'm dealing with. And um, to take a tally and inventory and say, okay, this is what I'm working with, and I know my own body, I have to go through it, and I'm just going to, you know, it's a learning process, and I had some very good professionals that I worked with, but yes, I had family, and yes, I had friends, but you know something? I had to be my own cheerleader in the very end, Lori, and I had to say to myself, I can fight this, I can outdo this, and um, uh, there's a higher power than me, but you know something? Uh, if I've gone through so much with my life and with my health. 
the doctors had said to my parents, because of what I had to begin with, if your son makes it to high school graduation, it'll be a medical miracle. But uh, I've reached a point now where I've made who's who of medical professionals, and I've proven every doctor wrong. But it was a challenge. But it comes down to me saying to myself, I can do this, and I have to weed out certain voices, and I have to be able to say, okay, how am I going to incorporate what was said to me in my own way, Lori? Mm-hmm. And so did you, was there any, like, tools or process that you went through to kind of be able to absorb all of that and move forward? Yes. Yes, I did, Lori. And I took stock and inventory of where what I've been through with my life. Here I am. I'm not even 30 years old yet. I have I had lost my college fiance to a drunk driver on New Year's Eve. We were going to get married, Valentine's Day. Her sister, her identical twin sister, developed breast cancer, and that was something to go through. And then I had three cancers in one year, and two of them, they don't even know what caused it. But I said, okay, I could either be in a pity party or I could say, okay, try to understand what's going on in my body, utilize what I learned in the past through other medical experiences and just build on that. And at the same time, realize that there are people, you know, I had a chance to... uh, for every cancer of recover of recurring being in total recovery ninety nine percent that's not bad, Lauren. to be able mm-hmm. to say no, no, it's not woe is me, hey, I'm pretty down lucky, and every day's a brand new day, and I'm able to give back and to help somebody out. I think that's kind of healthy, Lori. I think that's really healthy, and I think that that's something that can easily be applied. Well, I shouldn't say easily, I think it's it, you, you can apply that. Um, in dementia. I think anytime something catastrophic um, in a crisis hits, it's, it's always difficult, but to remind ourselves that we do have a choice in terms of how are we going to interact, what are we going to do, um, who do we want to be, and how do we want to be remembered. And we we definitely have choices. And not that it's not healthy to go through the grieving process with the loss and the change and adapting one's life. I think that that's something that's normal um, and it has to be processed, but you don't have to live in that state. Um, And I think when people choose to live in that state, that's when it becomes unhealthy. And again, I'm not a medical professional. This is just Lori talking. But I think it is very, very important for us to feel empowered and feel purposeful and when we can connect and give back, that does give us purpose. And purpose um, purpose is so powerful. You know, it keeps us connected. It keeps us hopeful. Um, it takes our mind off us. And it, it puts the focus back on something larger. And, again, I think that's one of the things that I find so amazing with all of the dementia advocates out there, and I mentioned a few, and I could go on and on and on. There are so, so many beautiful people diagnosed with dementia who have found new purpose, 
and um, this isn't probably what they ever imagined their life was going to be, but they are improving so many others' lives by speaking out and and being honest and um, having these conversations and talking to their politicians and their doctors and their neighbors and their you know storefront owners. Um, just anybody who who will listen and doing it on multiple platforms. Um, you know, most can't work after a period of time, um, yet they're still very able to communicate. And so they're saying, you know, my life's not over. Um, there's a bigger purpose of why I have this disease. And um, I know when I've worked with many just on dementia chats or having them on the radio show or maybe doing an interview, um, people say all the time how empowered they feel knowing their voice is helping others. Um, so maybe maybe the next person who gets diagnosed, the struggle um, won't be as significant. You know, maybe they'll be able to um, create change in our dementia care culture as a society and help families, you know, move forward with life with this disease. So, um, I think you're exactly right in terms of that life review and that purpose and in sharing knowledge is is very very critical and you know it's probably one of the easiest things we can do. Um, but but I, I think a lot of people think and you tell me your thoughts on this, Evan. I think a lot of people don't realize the amount of knowledge they have. What yes, do you think about that, is- that comment? Yes, they they don't. And what I wanted to mention also was that one of the people that I was dealing with who was driving me to my uh, radiation treatments, not chemo, but I started off with radiation, was developing, was in his early Alzheimer's state. And while I was going through with the five-year cancer period, and after that, you know, which I made, thank God, of all these cancers. And the thing I wanted to point out, Lori, was that every single one of these cancers that was diagnosed was caught at the exact uh, perfection of time. It, it, it was caught right when it needed to be caught or it could have been much worse. But here was a scenario where I knew I was seeing a change in this person driving me. And it developed into dementia when I had my second, third, and fourth cancers, and I was dealing with this. We uh, formed a friendship. We were actually helping each other, and this was an amazing thing to see. Person was flipping, going very quickly from Alzheimer's to dementia, and I saw the emotions experience, and I was able to relate to family members and professionals what was going on. So we were helping one another, Lori. You never know when you get into a life-threatening health situation like my own, that could be a matter of life or death. I've been through so many of them. Here somebody was brought into my life, and we wound up helping each other. And now this person who has dementia is which is just incredible. It was just an incredible life-sharing experience. Oh, that's nice. That's that is um 
you know, it's just wonderful to be able to hear stories like that um, in terms of, of helping one another out. I, I don't think we do that enough in society. A lot of times we get so busy and wrapped up in our own in our own life. Um, the other thing I want to point out is, um, and, and this will just go to knock down a myth, is that people with dementia don't drive. And there are a lot of people diagnosed with some type of form of dementia that are driving. And, um, and you know, in your case, it was a wonderful way, uh, you know, to help you get around and, um, and, and maneuver, um, you know, through what you were going through, plus, plus kids' support. So, um, you know, I want to thank you for, for sharing that with us. Um, what are your thoughts about, uh, if you can speak to kind of the stages, um, well, maybe we should go before that about how somebody should get diagnosed, you know, and who should they go to. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, you know, a lot of people yes. just go to their general yes, practitioner. Yes, they do, Lori. They should go to somebody who medically they can trust, but before they just go to any medical professional, you start off, uh, it depends on your insurance carrier. I've had many family members come to me and say, Evan, what do we do? We've seen a change in a mother, a father, a aunt, uncle. Is I listen. Listening is such a very key element. And try to, and I ask, well, what type of behavior are they exhibiting? And um, if I feel, because I'm not a doctor myself, I would, but I believe me, I've been around enough of these cases and I've been to seminars and been trained to look out for the warning sign. Let them go to somebody like their primary, explain what's going on, and what will happen is, in many cases with insurance companies, which is so botched up nowadays, refer them to a specialist and they need to go to somebody who know who's in that field that knows what they're talking about because you have a misdiagnosis, then any kind of treatment is not going to help a misdiagnosis. It's going to compound and worsen a situation that was not properly in diagnosed to begin with. Very true. Um, and again, you know, starting out with a, your general practitioner, I think is always fine, but, um, and that's the normal place people go, you know, to touch base with any problem, but then knowing that there are specialty doctors, you know, getting to a neurologist is really important, and a neurologist that that specifically knows about dementia um, and has a passion for it because, uh, you know, you need that support tapping into these different associations that are available and foundations from the Alzheimer's Association, um, if it's, you know, Lewy body, you know, aphasia, frontal temporal lobe, um, maybe it's the Alzheimer's Foundation, there's caregiver networks as well. Lots of great work resources um, on the Internet, but again, you want to definitely get that medical diagnosis um, so that you know exactly what you're dealing with. But again, you also need to have support in other areas um, to help you process things. Because as we all know, you know, we're on a time constraint with our doctors. And, uh, you know, they're on a, on a timeline typically on how long they can even talk to us. And so we, we need to make sure that, that people are getting the information um, from worthy sources and knowledgeable sources. And, um, 
and when it comes to that medical diagnosis of the person who wants, you know, that that medical profession um, behind that. But we also have to, I think, look real hard and fast, and this is one of my passions, at the emotional and psychological support that people need when they're going through a crisis like this. And um, because, you know, if we can't stabilize that mental health situation and help people wrap their arms around the change in their life, um, that's going to tailspin typically into a lot of other medical issues. And if we can avoid those. Right. Right. And I don't mean to interrupt. Something I wanted to shed some light on just to kind of clarify to people, the audience. The person who was driving me did... He did a stint, um, it was two months that I had radiation, but his Alzheimer's had slipped into dementia, so he was not driving when he had dementia. He was not driving me at the time, but we had formed such a bond that it, the Alzheimer's just went into dementia, and I was able, like I said, we were able to help each other, and what I would do is draw out memories of he had been through the depression, he had been in the service, and by me focusing in on key elements in his life, you could see the fading in and out, but you could actually see this person, how beautiful this person is, and what this person had accomplished in his life, and here is someone, yes, we see them, they have dementia, but you know, Lori, they are human beings done such significant things. And I I know I shared with you before I went on this show with you about a woman in Brooklyn, New York, where I'm from, who dementia actually made her into a better person. And that's very rarely heard of, Lori. Mm-hmm. Do you want to share that story with people in terms of some details? If you don't mind, Lori, I would like to, yes. I knew of a woman from Brooklyn, New York, where I lived, and we all, all of a sudden, the family contacted me, and they said, there is change in our family member. And I says, well, what kind of change? What they were describing at first was like all over the place, and I says, well, can you just centralize it? Is there some key elements that are repetitive day in and day out? And I I felt like I was playing social worker, but um, they said yes, and they did get an evaluation. The person had, was diagnosed, she was diagnosed with dementia. Here was a person who was a teacher their entire lives, and she worked with students, and I knew this from the past. She never gave up on a student. She was old school and if um, she was teaching them to read or play a musical instrument, she worked with them and just didn't want to see them give up, brought out their inner talent in them. And when this person was, dementia was setting in, at each level, Lori, that the dementia took another stage, I would be talking to this person and I would bring out the fact she would be telling me about these things and admit this horrible disease she had, I was able to bring her back to the days where she was helping 
these students, and she said, you know something, there's something going on inside of me, and I could do something to help myself. It was unbelievable, because you hear these stories of how um, vicious they turn into, this is an ugly disease, I'm not saying it's not ugly, and here is a person, you see a picture before and after, and she would go through her bouts, and then all of a sudden, what happened was, as the dementia got deeper, her personality was changing for the better, Lori, not for the worse. She was so determined that she would take control of her own emotions in life, and she said, wait a second, it was just a revelation that you don't see very often, Lori. Well, and I and I think again you broke down another myth of you know not everybody is you know has these nasty personality changes um, and you know gets combative and and things and and sometimes people think that either people are you know if they're old they're catatonic and they don't understand anything or that they get very aggressive. And, you know, that's not the case. Every person with with uh, dementia is different. And a lot of times we can control and change those um, behaviors um, or reactions, as I like to call them, by changing our environment and changing our service delivery style. Uh, because many yep. times we're, we're the cause of the problem. And so I, I was talking with somebody um Yesterday, I'm out in Wisconsin in Watertown, and we're going to be launching uh, what we think is going to be the first dementia-friendly community in the U.S. Um, officially. And there might be others, and if there are, we'd, we'd love to hear from them. We'll be talking about that a little later on in the show. But I was uh, talking with a man, and, and he was talking about, you know, how difficult it is to get people to embrace um change and to overcome what they just see from the outside because they're not educated enough. And he was talking more about mental illness and developmental disabilities. And, you know, it really isn't any different than somebody in a lot of ways than someone with dementia or what it used to be like for somebody with her or AIDS. You know, the fear that um, is, is caused by those words. And people look for excuses of, you know, how not to interact or reasons why somebody is is acting the way they are. They they label they label the behavior as inappropriate and many times the behavior is extremely appropriate. We just haven't been paying attention to the communication in which they can give us. Um to change things because a lot of times there's discomfort or there's fear and we're thinking that they're acting out and they're terrified. Um, but mm-hmm. if you change little things in their environment, it can make a huge difference. Um, you know, one of the examples I use a lot is even for my mom. Uh, you know, there was a point in time where brushing her teeth or giving her a shower, she would just go berserk. Well, she was going berserk because she didn't understand what those things were about. She didn't understand why she had to be naked in front of strangers. She didn't understand why she was pushed under covered cold water. You know, um, it scared her because she didn't 
realized it was a shower um, or hot water didn't make any difference um, or why somebody was sticking this, which she thought was a pen in her mouth and it was a toothbrush. Um, none of those motions made sense to her anymore. And so to be able to not just assume that somebody knows what they always do um, and that they're going to react the way they always did is no longer appropriate for us. And when we really look at it, we're the ones having the bad behavior. That's and right, Lori. And it, it, mm-hmm. it, I'm sorry, it's a matter of re-education. And here with this woman who had dementia, I was sharing my cancer experience that I lost a college fiancé, and I would hear her say, but you can't give up, Evan. You have to pull through. You have. You can do this. You can do that. Here's the person that is dealing at this point, you know, she was in the middle of her Alzheimer's, uh, her dementia cycle, and it's a matter of it being able to see, and, and I said to her, uh, she was made aware that she had this disease. It was called dementia. She had seen it in other people, and here she is giving me advice. It was changing her, changing the overall, the bouts that she had of being nasty or, every you know, everybody's different with dementia, but it was like a flower growing and she was blossoming. And it, it was just an incredible thing to witness, Lori. Yeah, it, it is a beautiful, beautiful um, opportunity to, to be involved with I I've heard many families say, um, because every family dynamic is a little bit different, where yes. they'll say, oh, you know, I was never close with my mom or dad, you know, or they didn't treat me very well. Um, right. And, and what I and they'd say, so why should I care for them now? And my response to that is, you know, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity to change the life you had and make the life you wanted. Exactly for each of you. Exactly, and and some you know, and and it doesn't work in every case, but so no. many times people will say, "Oh my gosh, this really, I, I got to know my dad or my mom for the first time. I, I got to know the one that I always wanted." It's huge. It is, and this family was shown, Lori, by our interaction and actually brought the family closer together because at first they would just put off, they, you know, hey, we got our own lives and everything. And many of the people where I do volunteer work, I'm their only visitor. And here is someone from, you know, from Brooklyn who I knew who was a big influence in my life here she's struggling with the disease, and her family kind of was at wit's ends, and they figure, well, we got our own lives. Now the quality of her life is different, and here is the woman who bathes you. Here's the woman that paid your school tuition who was always there for you. And now I'm trying, what I brought them into the scenario is, here's your mother who has dementia, and it's this, this crippling disease that you've heard only one side of the ugly side of, and look at how she's blossoming and how she's giving back to other people. And they saw that, Lori, and they were utterly amazed, which drew more attention 
and it just made the the here you have the dynamics that of a dysfunctional kids uh, family members and brought them back to reality that here is a woman who's a human being who has accomplished so much in her life and here she is struggling with a illness in telling me who I've gone through all these cancers to hang in there and stick with it. The same voice that helped so many people stick with and achieve when she did not have this disease, Lori. It brought it all back. Yep, definitely. Um, well, I can't believe how fast time is going. We've got about 15 minutes left, and there's um, several other things that I wanted to be able to um, talk with you on. Um one of the things, you know, people always speak, especially the medical professionals, like to speak about um, stages of this disease. What What are your thoughts about stages? Because I know they they talk about that with cancer and things like that. Uh, is that helpful or hurtful, do you think, to to some people in terms of their diagnosis? Um, does it give them hope or does it take, does it take it away when we talk? Lori, it depends upon the family dynamics. It depends. Everybody is different. With me, it was presented in such a good way. My first cancer was, yes, this is the best type of cancer you could possibly have. You have a 99.9% chance of recovery. And my second cancer, which was followed within less than six months, Lori, um, you know, if we gave you the type of chemo we wanted to really give you, you would not be able to deal with it. So we're taking a chance here uh, in giving you this type. And it's just, it was presented to me in a calm way, and I had to process it myself. And, of course, um, I don't mean to harp on this, but after losing someone in my life who I was going to be wed to, dealing with this, um, it was like being all thrown at me at once, but I had to be able to separate it and say, okay, uh, here are the benefits, and there is a chance that um, let's look at the good point and the, the odds of my recovery. And then into the third cancer that I had of December of that year, doctors were amazed. They said, well, we've never seen something like this before. And as well, I'm a very unique person. Um, I looked at it this way. Every single cancer I had was caught in just the nick of time. It couldn't, it could have happened the opposite way. It could have been said to me that, guess what? You're at a stage that we just can't do much about it. So, I have to be thanking God that each cancer I had was caught in plenty of time or just in the nick of time. But then the ball it was the ball was in my court. How was I going to process that to make it happen to survive, Lori? Mhm. Yeah. Now, what what are your um, since I think sometimes you know one of the things that I struggle with when I talk about stages. Um, is sometimes I think um, the medical and a- academic um, professions are so in tune and so used to speaking the medical speak, they forget about 
real everyday life people having to live within the diagnosis. And so I think to me that's where some of the balance has to come. I think it's important for people to be educated on a stage, but I don't think that they should have to live as a stage. And I think there's a really fine line there. Um, yes. So one of the things that I always say is, you know, people should um, should not have to live with the disease or as a disease. They need to learn how to live with it. And so for me, I think there needs to be more education on how to do that and how to do that gracefully and how to do that purposefully, um, you know, within somebody's life. Uh, I, I think that that's a very, very critical critical piece. What What would be some recommendations that you would have for, someone who is worried about a diagnosis um, and hasn't gone to the doctor yet, what would you say to them? I would say to them, first, you don't want to pick, paint the worst-case scenario because that will raise your your anxiety levels going to spike. You need mm-hmm. to be able to be realistic and be accepting of the fact of what it could actually be and educate yourself if it's this or relating to dementia. It could, if it's in the early stages, or do I actually have dementia, or if it's progressed to this, educate yourself so you know what you're going up against and go in with confidence saying, okay, look at what you have to work with and being able, there's a fine balance there. You have to be your own cheerleader. You have to be the one to be open to listen to any diagnosis, which was not easy for me, and then to say, all right, to be able to process this and say, well, where do I go from here? The woman who I just spoke to you about from Brooklyn took on the attitude, okay, this was the diagnosis, and her attitude at the time was not so much rejection, but okay, um, I have inner resources that I'm going to utilize to deal with this. And so my answer, I guess what I'm trying to say is educate yourself. Nowadays, they have so much education out there. And be able to say to yourself, I'm going in with an open mind and I'm going to listen to the diagnosis and then from there, we learn how to cope with it, utilize coping skills and mechanisms. Okay, which, which makes a lot of sense. Um, what, would you, what would you say to a, um, a community that is dealing with dementia or wants to look at dementia? Um, as a whole, do you have a, a message for a community at large, any cities listening out there um, or communities uh, that maybe want to make some changes? What advice would you give them? Yes, and that would be that here are people that are full of knowledge. You need to educate those around them to see that this is an illness that is created the person did not ask for this illness but there this is the ugly side of the illness but there's also the good side of the illness where all of you can learn and make coping a lot easier for that person 
Okay. And what do you think about dementia-friendly communities? Um, do you think that that's something that's attainable? Yes, I do, Lori. Good. I'm glad to hear that. I'm rolling up what we think is uh, the first one um, yet tonight, and, and I think that that's just going to be a massive movement, and I'm so proud of Watertown, Wisconsin, for, for taking that step. Um, and we'll be talking with Jan Zimmerman with the Lutheran Home Association and Heritage um, Homes a little bit later for, for more details on that. But there's so much that we can all do together. No one is immune um, from this disease by any stretch of the imagination. And so many more are touched by dementia and the, the symptoms of dementia that, than we'll ever know. You know, a survey can't get that all down because so many people are even in denial that they're dealing with it. And that's one of the biggest, you know, battles that we have to face. You know, with that, with that particular um, disease. Now, you're an interpreter, and of, of you know, multiple languages. Do you see any any trends with dementia, um, you know, throughout cultures at all, or, or any differences that you want to talk about here in the, in the last few minutes? I do, Lori. And where I'm able to speak numerous languages and I deal with so many different cultures of people, the it the culture itself is, um, there are some cultures where these people are just so strong and bold that they are, um, some are because of, their upbringing and the um, there's a lot of factors. They don't experience the full dementia. There are other cultures where they're in denial. And what I've seen is how the families, I analyze how the families view the, their members who actually have this disease. And in America here, the people that I see, the families that have dementia, are lashing out and they're pushing away the family member to professionals and saying, okay, you deal with them. Whereas in other societies, uh, cultures that I deal with, there is an embracing of the entire family. And where I speak all these different languages and I could able to, I'm able to understand you can see quite the difference between European cultures, like Western European cultures that are here in America, uh, Asian cultures. There are certain cultures that are embracing it more than the people here in America itself, Lori, and it's sad. It is It is sad, um, but we're changing. You know, it, it all just takes a little bit of time. Well, Evan, this has yeah. just been a, a great conversation, and I, I so thank you for, you know, the time that you shared with us today. Um, any last-minute thoughts? Otherwise, I'm going to go ahead and we'll, we'll get on to our second guest here. But any last-minute thoughts that you'd like to share? It's Yes, I would, Lori. And that is, and this is something I do with my clients and everyone of us is different, Lori, is, Put yourself in their shoes. This is something that they did not ask for. And view it as a learning process. This is a loved one. This is 
something that's taken over their body. They're not doing this intentionally. They're not acting out intentionally. And it's a way that you can make an impact on your own life, coping skills, and helping them cope as well. Exactly. Well, listen, you have a wonderful day. And, again, thank you so much for being part of our show, and I'm sure we'll be in touch in the future. Um, If somebody wants to reach out to you, Evan, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Okay, there is my email address and there's my cell phone, Laurie. And are you comfortable giving those out over the air? I am, Laurie, and I'm on a site called LinkedIn.com under Evan B. Mm-hmm. Gessman. It's G-E-S-S, like in Sam, M-A-N. My cell phone number is 508-208-8697. That's 508-208-8697. And my email address is my last name, Gessman, G-E-S-S like in Sam, M like in Mary, A like in Apple, N like in Nancy, E like in Evan at yahoo.com. And feel free, Lori, if anybody calls in and wants that information, to give it out very easily. Okay, wonderful. Well, you have a great week, and thanks for, thanks for kicking this week off with us. appreciate your time. Thank you, Lori, and thank you for having me. I know. Well, before I introduce our next guest, I always like to give some kind of mid-program highlights of what's happened since we've uh, talked to last. And so our last radio show was on the 8th, and our topics for that show were on aphasia um, or dementia, and it was really a great educational show. The National Aphasia Association was on. And then um, I had some friends of mine on, uh, Lori Ellis Young and um, Nancy Sharkran, who uh, have uh, who do a lot with breathing in yoga, and so they they talk a lot about breath work and the power of breath work from its healing modalities, um, which is pretty fascinating. They they do some awesome awesome workshops, and so um, I would highly recommend um, listening to that show. As you know, all of our shows are archived. Our next show coming up is going to be called Love in the Land of Dementia and What Has Love Made You Do? Because one of the things that's been very interesting with dementia is, and we talked about this a little bit today, and it comes up just about on every single show, is when people learn to live with dementia, it gives them new purpose. And, uh, you know, for me, I mean, whoever thought I would be doing what I'm doing I had a wonderful uh, residential real estate career of 25 years, and now here I am talking with people all over the world from regarding dementia and trying to connect people. So this disease, um, you know, can be a tool to empower you to help make change and to help improve lives. And our, our next guest is going to be talking about, you know, how it's affected her as well and what she's done. Um, but before I but before I get into um, introducing uh, Esther, um, I want to highlight also our last dementia chat segment, which was October eighth. And on that um, episode, those are webinars that I do twice a month, and I interview those with dementia. And so they are truly our experts. And we talked about making a big move or a small move and just understanding the impact of change. 
We've talked about some ideas for builders and developers, um, getting groups together at work, um, and we talked about the launch of, of what we believe is going to be um, in the U.S., which is going to be Watertown, Wisconsin. And again, we'll be having uh, Jan Zimmerman on a little bit later to talk about that because our kickoff um, expo is tonight for that. And then next Tuesday, we will be doing another Dementia Chat webinar. Again, those are all free. You can find all the links to these on alzheimerspeaks.com, as well as information on our blog. And um, I'm just going to highlight a couple of articles that were posted since our last show. One is called You're a Cow, and it was written by one of my interns, Michelle, and um, it's just all about having a sense of humor, and she's gotten some nice comments on that. So if you want to go read the article, You're a Cow, uh, then there's more information about Watertown, uh, Wisconsin, opening up their memory cap and going dementia-friendly. Um, there's a couple of press releases on that. And there's also a video about um, music therapy for dementia, aphasia, and stroke. And I've gotten some comments from music therapists saying, you know, this isn't a true music therapist. And, um, and I understand that they go to school and it's long and hard. And I, I appreciate that. And so we, we have a conversation about what um, what constitutes therapy because I think my radio is therapy for me. It, you know, the radio station might not be licensed, um, but it's still therapeutic. And so I'm trying the conversation on that because it's wide and it's deep and, um, you know, the article was not meant to offend anybody by any stretch of the imagination. But it's a good conversation to have and uh, Ashley, one of our, our um, uh, one of our subscribers to our blog, you know, points out, um, you know, the work that these people go through and and the talent that they have and how important it is. And I agree that the public knows what exactly they are getting uh, for their dollar when when hiring somebody. So let me go ahead and introduce our second guest. Um, he is an author and, and uh, of a nonfiction type, and she's a poet, um, and she also has her Ph.D. in, in the history, and she's from the University of uh, Washington is where she got her Ph.D. Esther Ashel, um Helfgott, who has, has really a way with the pen. Her work has appeared in the Journal of Poetry Therapy, um, a Journal of Jewish Literature, Drash, um, Northwest Masonic. Um, the list just kind of goes on and on and on um, where she has been published. And um, today what we're going to talk about, she has written many uh, different things, many different books, um, authored The Homeless One, A Poem of Many Voices, but today, the one that we're really going to talk about is her new book called Fear Alzheimer's. And it's a caregiver's diary and, um, and poem. And it was put out by uh, Cave Moon Press. And uh, I'm just I'm thrilled to have her with us. So how are you doing today, Esther? I'm doing real good. This is great. I haven't listened well, to um, radio um on on the telephone ever. The only time I listen to talk radio is on NPR. So this is a new experience for me. 
Yep. Well, you can you can do it on that, or you can listen to it on the internet, or you can load it up to your iPad. Or there's so many different ways nowadays with internet radio. So it's it's pretty pretty mobile. But I'm I'm really excited to have you with us today. Can you, before we get, can you um, just give our audience a little idea if you have been personally touched by Alzheimer's or dementia? And if so, how? And then we'll get into the writing of the book. Well, my hu- my husband Abe had um, Alzheimer's for many years, almost a decade. From about he died on June tenth, um, twenty ten, and um, no, he died June fifteenth. But um, uh, he had Alzheimer's probably from two thousand two. He was okay. diagnosed two thousand three. Okay. So you definitely saw some signs um, prior to diagnosis, which is pretty common. Uh, most people say it can take, you know, two to three years to actually get a diagnosis. Um, how long did it take you guys to go through the process to get the formal well, diagnosis? Well, you know, it's really hard to um, it's really hard to pinpoint because you know there there's um, nothing straightforward about Alzheimer's, and I just know that. After he had hip surgery around 2001, life started changing. I didn't understand a lot of stuff that was happening with us as a couple and realized looking back that that had a lot to do with an onset of Alzheimer's. And that's something I wouldn't have believed because he was a pathologist and um, uh, a very brilliant man. Of course, I learned later that Alzheimer's is very democratic and it touches people in every walks of life and every profession. Um, uh, but it was it was very disconcerting. I probably uh, really figured out around um, two, 2001 or so when he stopped telling me directions when I was in the car. And he, he was always the navigator and I was the driver. And um, I should have put this in the book. This is one thing that didn't go in my book. But I'd be driving, and I always had a hard time right or left um, downtown, which way to turn. And he would always say, it's right. And then you go in such and such a space and turn left. But all of a sudden, he stopped doing that. And I thought, well, what's going on? Is he mad or something? Well, looking back, he didn't know. He had forgotten. So um, looking back at these individual experiences, um, tell me uh, how difficult it it is for two people to understand what's happening in their lives when Alzheimer's touches it. You know, it's it's interesting when you said you didn't put just the example in the book and and things. And there's so many stories that people have. And when they write books, I mean, you just, you can't put them all in. And sometimes we don't realize how significant things are. And one of the things that I, I've heard just repeatedly from people was, um, and you mentioned this, that, that it started to affect your relationship. And a lot of times people think, I'm just getting divorced. I don't get what's going on. Apparently, you know, they don't right. love me or we don't right. have our relationship isn't what it is, and so a lot of times people think it's a midlife crisis. <laughs> so, and so, I mean, that just shows how difficult this is to diagnose because um, it's very much relationship-based, um, even though there's definitely some medical issues, but in terms of how it affects us and how we react to it. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's very important for people to look at at big picture 
um, because we, we a lot of times just kind of go down that rabbit hole, and it's a it's an easy thing to do, especially when everybody and their brother's getting divorced these days. <laughs> right, and also it's so important to have community around you. I was listening to the uh, fellow who was right before me, and you asked him something about um, what would you do if you were diagnosed, or I, I didn't hear the whole thing, but if, if you were um I uh, ha- had to make some decisions if, uh, around diagnosis and um, and dealing with it. And he didn't say, and I wanted him to say, that it's so important to have people around you who are involved with the process as you're going through it. And um, I-, I think that's so important because Alzheimer's makes uh, people isolated, more isolated they- than they already are, are in our society. Very, that's a very good point. And, you know, one of the problems that this disease has is that a lot of people kind of skedaddle when, when they hear the word exactly. know, um, Alzheimer's. And, you know, that's one of the beauties of social media now is, you know, you you can connect with people all over the world at any time. And, right. You know, well, the Alzheimer's community was very important to me online. Because at 3 o'clock in the morning, of course, you have no night and day with Alzheimer's. And so if I'm up at 3 or 4 in the morning taking care of my husband, um, and then I get five minutes rest because he he, uh, uh, lies down or or, or, um, closes his eyes or or, um, whatever, I can go on the Alzheimer's community and discuss what's happening. So that that was uh, online. So that was very important to me. Uh, and I think that that's a that's a good point to bring out that you know it is a twenty four seven disease and people's schedules change and I when I was in the thick of it I remember being up a lot in the middle of the night and you know my mom didn't you know wasn't always living with me there were periods of time when my when my folks were um, living with us and people were like how do you do that and I'm like you just do you know you just do and I would you worry just do so much it. and I. And I wouldn't be able to sleep, and so then I'd get up and do some work, or you know, I'd have to feel somewhat productive, or you know, or I was just looking for some answer. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's very, very important um, to be able to do that. And I think one of the the beauties too of not only social media but books, like what you've written, is it allows people to connect in that fashion as well. So why don't we talk about? about your book, Ear Alzheimer's, A Caregiver's Diary and Poems. Um, did you decide to do this from the onset, or was it something that just kind of morphed into being, um, you know? Something that just what? Uh, or I'm was sorry, I didn't hear you. Just, or was it something that just morphed into being? Oh, um, well, I've been a writer all my life, and um, journal- I kept a diary for many, many years, and I just automatically write every day. So, yeah, it just morphed. It's just um, uh, it, it was an extension. Writing this book is an extension of what I always do. And in your introduction, you said I've written many books. No, um, uh, this is my first full-length book. Um, I've written many other things, but uh, this is the first full-length. And, and I think what um, writing in relationship to Alzheimer's did for me is say you got to get your stuff into book form, that articles are, are essays and poems. It's not enough to have a piece here and a piece there. You have to be able to hold it 
all your stuff concerned with Alzheimer's in between the covers of a book. And um, so the Alzheimer's itself and feeling that I had to share this experience with others, hoping it would, what my experience would um, offer uh, um, some kind of help to other people, drove me to get uh, to put it all my writing in book form. And of course, not all, but what um, the amount uh, I could put within the covers of this particular book. Oh, wonderful. Um, now, you, in terms of, of writing, I, I, I've always found writing to be really healing. Is that something that, that you found for yourself in terms of writing as well, in terms of coping with the disease? You found it healing, you say? Yes. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Writing um, generally for me has always been uh, a healing experience. It helps me um, get to know what I'm thinking or what I'm feeling and to put life in perspective. And I did that even as a teenager uh, with Alzheimer, and I'm way beyond teenage years now. Um, But when Alzheimer's fell into my lap like a grizzly bear, you know, you just don't know what to do. So writing was something I could always rely on. Um, it helped, helped me through the process, um, the process of um, grieving, a loss that I didn't even I didn't even know I was losing, and um, helped help me integrate what was happening into my life. So, so yes, it's very much a healing tool, not only for myself, myself in relation to others, because as you mentioned, you know, others just run away when they hear Alzheimer's. So it's very important to me to analyze what was happening with myself and Abe in relation to other people. And you know, I wrote scores and scores of pages on that. And it helped me when I came in contact with them again. Well, that's good. Now... <laughs> Um, when it comes to your writing, you know, how have you continued to write about uh, Alzheimer's in the process, you know, since your loss of, of Abe? Oh, uh, well, sure. I, I had a, I had a, a blog from, um, for three years um, called Witnessing Alzheimer's, a Caregiver's View, um, that I thought I was going to stop once Abe died um, in 2010, but I find I keep going back to it. And now, especially with the book, that I want to tell people um, about the book and, and what's going on in terms of um, my activities, like doing readings or so forth, or teaching a caregiver's class, which I'm doing now at a senior center, and helping other people write and guide them through the process of writing. Um uh, the, the book it's, it's a very very important process the 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 writing and and um, connect, helping you connect with other people and yourself in relation to them. I don't know if I answered your question. Can can you repeat that question again? Yeah, no, I I think it was fine. I had asked you know how you know if you were still writing after you know oh yeah yeah passed and. Yeah, because writing is something I do anyway. It wasn't Mm -hmm. anomalous, you know. It wasn't something different that now Abe has Alzheimer's and I'm going to start to write about it. Um, For me, it's a continuing process of my life. I have about 40 years of of diaries in my file cabinet to give to an archives. Um, 
but for other people who have not write, written all their lives, I would um, suggest that this is a good thing to start doing if you have to deal with something as complicated, that's so complex as Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And every day, every every living day. Well, and the nice thing with writing is you can keep it private or you can share it. That's you true. Know, that's and, true. And, and you, you can look back you know, on your life. You can open yeah. your journal. Like I can look at my journal from five years ago and say, oh, this is why that happened. This is what mm-hmm. I was doing. Yeah, it is interesting. I I journal not as I used to be um, very adamant about it, and I don't do it so much anymore. Um, but I still have all these different journals, um, and I go back and I read them, and it's just kind of fascinating. Um, well, do you publish were, them too, so other people can see them? Um, at this point, I, you know, my journals have just been private for me, uh-huh. and then uh, you know, I, but I, you know, I write on the blog and do articles for people and things like that, but. My mm-hmm. journal is just more, you know, has been more private. I don't know if anyone could even read my writing. And, uh-huh. you know, so many people are so afraid to write and, you know, they don't have good grammar, they don't know how to write a story. And it, it's not, journaling is not about that. You know, it's just about getting thoughts down. And, you know, if you start out with even just putting some words down that capture your day, that's okay. That's right. There's no, there's no right or wrong to it. That's the... That's the beauty in it, um, but it's really a, a very interesting process, and it can really help you reflect on your life, um, capture memories. I mean, there's there's so many different things, and then if you choose to share it, you know, it could be with just one person, or it might be with a large audience. Um, well, you know, um, I think sharing what we've written is, is so important. Not that we have to do that, and those who who want to keep it private, that's fine. But um, this weekend, for instance, I I did a short reading at um, a writers group in a different part of the community than I live in, and um, and the group um, it was an African American group with teenagers. Uh, and middle-agers and old-agers all together in the same room. And when I got up and read what I, I had written in the book, um, not my everyday diary that I'm keeping now, a young man came up to me and he said he's been trying to write for years and only after hearing me read could could he did he now feel that he was capable of doing that. And that just reinforced my feeling that we need to share what we what we write in private because it will help other people. But which isn't to say if you can't do that that there's anything um, you know anything wrong with that. But I, I I'm really one who uh, encourages people to share, even as you say if it's with one person. Yeah, and it you know it, sharing is a two way street. And so as scary as it is sometimes to let her thoughts and feelings go out or, you know, and pose something because somebody might criticize us, it's scary for another person to respond to us too. And sometimes we forget, you know, that we have gotten to be a society that doesn't really engage. We talk a lot, but we don't say much. You know, that's that has true. meeting that's or, true. or, you know, we don't have, we don't, we don't have conversations of substance and that's, one of the beauties with dementia and one of the things that I found even through social media 
people are so surprised at how connected so quickly they become. And it's because they're having real conversations that matter. That's right. That's right. You know, so, you know, um, if, if you're feeling lonely or if you're feeling disconnected, you know, start by having a real conversation. Tell people mm-hmm. what's on your mind. You know, pose a question. And it's not about being right or wrong. It's not about having the answers. It's about having the discussion. <laughs> right. And seeing each other's feelings. Exactly. It fascinates me how um, disconnected we have gotten and we don't even know that we're disconnected. You know, it's mm-hmm. really a, a pretty pretty sad state that we're in. Well, what kind of tips do you have for caregivers? I would imagine you have quite a few, um, given that you, you know, lived with this disease with your husband for so many years. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, when my husband got sick, and through his years in the nursing home and assisted living, um, and that was around eight years from the time he got sick, I didn't get angry with him when I knew he was ill, which was much different from before. <laughs> we had a normal relationship where you, you get angry and you make up and you laugh and you cry and so forth. But when he he, I I would recommend if you're asking you. Um, What's most important that I remember is um, containing any anger you feel. Get angry in another room because they feel mm-hmm. your emotion. Um, even if you're not saying um, that you're angry, um, I think they're feeling it. And um, mm-hmm. through through um, the caregiving process, I was, of course, I don't know how much, and not everybody touch or they're not as touchy um as everybody else. And Abe and I were very touchy, always. Even if we had an argument, we were always cuddling. And um that worked until the day he died. So one one thing I always say is touch that person. Touch the Alzheimer's patient. because um, they might they get more from touching I think than anything else. And if you're angry at a nurse, say, or somebody who who's helping you, go in another room. Because I know I felt a lot of anger, and and along with sadness. Um, but that was another thing where writing helped me. Um, I was able to write out the anger, uh, okay. and and that was so important to me. You know, why did this happen to us? Uh, it, this doesn't happen to us. And so I could just write it, you know, for pages and pages. And and it's very hard not to be angry at somebody who you have full responsibility for, and who does things that are uh, are um, inconsistent with everyday life. You know, for instance, I had an elevator put in their house when he was um, uh, after he got sick, because we're in a three-story house, and running up and down the steps was killing me. And um, it was not good for him. And so I put the elevator in the house, which which was uh, a very difficult situation, just the process of getting it in there. Anyway, uh, we finally got it working, and people would come in, and he would take them to the fifth floor. Well, we live in the third floor. And um, things like that are really funny. And... and, um, but they're they're also scary. And once I was on the elevator, and and 
uh, I was going up to get him something on the third floor, and um, I had some food on the stove, and he was there in the kitchen with the dog, and and he, then he started pulling the elevator. And this is not in my book either. I should have put this in. And it got stuck. And mm-hmm. here I am on uh, between floors. So I figured out how to um, pull the elevator down, and I um, I was able to jump off. But um, then I turned off the stove, and uh, um, we kind of laughed about it. He didn't really understand what happened. Um, but... I don't know what do you what do you do you you just love a person the way they need to be loved and uh the best way you can you know well, we all great. don't love in the same way we don't all care give in the same way so it works for me for instance you know the stroking somebody rubbing somebody's back um uh, maybe that wouldn't work with somebody else. So I think we all have to find our in, individual ways of uh, of caring for people. But, you know, once you make the decision that you're going to do this or the decision is made for you, um, you find ways to cope with it and to deal with your to deal with your emotions. And I probably should take back that I didn't get angry in eight years at him. I'm sure I did because that sounds very... Uh, inconceivable but um i i worked with that in myself mm-hmm. well, and i also tried to get people to come visit him and not everybody wanted to you know they didn't know what to do with this grizzly bear in their laps that i would I, I wouldn't say people would invite me out for lunch and i'd think well why didn't they offer to give me a break and take care of it abe for an hour um but not everybody's up for that. You know, and I think I got annoyed more with other people than I did with Abe. So that was another thing that uh, writing was very helpful uh, mm-hmm. for me. Good, good. And I, and I think it is about realizing, uh, and this is one thing that I, I love that you said, is, you know, you know, love them the way that you can, the way that you do. And, and all of us do that differently. And for some reason... Uh, anyways, I know I fell into this mode horribly. Was I? I turned into this massive control freak, and uh-huh. I wanted every, everything to be done my way. And yeah. when I look back, I mean, just thinking from what you said, is I wanted everyone to love them the way I love them. That's right. That's right. And they and, don't. They don't have the same relationship, especially no. children. So don't have the same relationship with the, uh with their father as his wife would have you know mm-hmm. and and with your mother you didn't have the same relationship with your mom that her your dad might have had exactly and so it's just it you know when i think about it now i mean back then i i i thought it was right i thought it was you know come on get with the program you guys you know type thing and i didn't i didn't realize what I was asking of somebody, you know. Right, right. Up. That's one thing I've learned, too, about expectations of other people, that mm-hmm. um, that you have to accept people for what they can give, and they might not know. Um, they don't know to do things your way, and why should they? Exactly, and, and our way isn't always the right way or the best right. way. It's just one way. 
Yeah, and I was very controlling, too, when it came to the assisted living, when I had to put him in assisted living and and nursing home uh, eventually. Uh, I was um, on top of the staff all the time, and I'm sure that I was not one of their favorite people. But if they weren't... um, if they weren't responsive to him in the way that I thought that they should, I, w- I would be very upset. And, for instance, when they put on his chart, patient refused, like patient refused to eat, well, he had forgotten how to swallow. So how how could he um, refuse? Refuse means that you're thinking about whether you want to do something. And Alzheimer's mm-hmm. patients don't necessarily know how to do that, especially towards the end. So... Um, yeah, I, I was very controlling when it came to uh, the uh, his care. So I understand mm-hmm. what you're saying. Yeah, it's and it's weird because I think I, I think most of us don't even realize we're doing that. We just want them to be loved and cared for in the very best fashion, mm-hmm. and we don't always understand how how we're coming off there. How how has life changed for you through this disease? How has it changed for me? Mm-hmm. Um, is that what you said? How has life changed yep. for me? Um, our connection isn't that great. Um, you know, I was thinking about that last night. Um, how has it changed him? I don't feel that it's changed all that much. He's gone. That's the biggest change. And um, I have not remarried. I haven't uh, got in, into the kind of relationship I was with Abe. And I never. I'm sure I never will. He, um, he, he, and I. I had um, a very close relationship. I feel into the end. And um, even when he didn't know me, he w- he was still Abe, and I was the same way with him that I'd always been, probably kinder in the end. Um, but uh, in terms of change, I'm more focused on um, on getting things done now that I wanted to do when he he was sick and I couldn't, you know, like getting my books out. And, um, you know, I said when I turn 70, I want to try to get out a book a year. So I'm on, I am got this one out, and then um, um, I have another one coming out in, in 2014, um, also around Alzheimer's. And um, so what's changed is mostly is that I am more um, focused on myself, getting getting my work out and knowing that it's important. That uh, to take care of what I want to do, not just what somebody else wants to do, you know, the kids okay. or uh, or whoever. Um, so I, I would okay. say, and I'm still in the same place where we lived for 30 years, and so my life hasn't changed in terms of space. Um, it's more a kind of an intellectual and emotional freedom, not necessarily emotional, but an intellectual freedom that I can uh, write whatever I want and, and and get the stuff out off off my desk and out of the drawers. Okay. Um, can you you want to share one last story with us and um, and then tell people how they can get your book? Uh, well, they can get it through Amazon. Um, in, in Seattle, they're at the local bookstores. Uh, what I can do is maybe read uh, a couple poems from it. Okay. Um, and 
and this, I'm going to read this poem, Reading with Alzheimer's, and this was very, very true, exactly as um, uh, I'm going to read it. And sometimes you write things and you make them up, but this is absolutely true. I called it Reading with Alzheimer's, and it took place in 2005. Sprawled out in the recliner, wearing a tie-dyed shirt the kids gave him, a Middle Eastern yarmulke on his head. He holds a book of stories in his hands turns the pages as he always did, carefully, respectfully, leaning, learning words the brain loses before he understands. That's beautiful. And um, do we want to end there? Uh, you can read one more if you if you like. Okay. Um, This is tonight, also in 2005. I admit he can no longer read. All the while he sits at the table, bent over his paper, poised to read. I ask him, what's happening? The words won't to my cortex, he says. Stick, I ask? Yes, stick. The words won't to my cortex, sweetheart. Well, your your book is is a, just a beautiful, beautiful collection, and I think it will touch anybody who has dealt with this disease, or is thinking that they might be on this journey, or even someone who is thinking that they would like to get involved. I think you'll glean great insight, and I just thank you so much, Esther, for for sharing um, with us your your life with dementia. Um, you've done it in a beautiful, beautiful fashion, and I know it will help many, many people. And again, uh, people can go and get your book um, at your at your website. And no, at Amazon. At, oh, at Amazon. You want them to Amazon.com. Okay. Okay. And the name of the book again is Dear Alzheimer's: A Caregiver's Diary and Poems. Correct. Right. Right. Okay. Thank you so much, Laurie, and thanks for the work you do. Well, thank you. You have a wonderful week, and I'm sure we'll be in touch soon, okay? Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye now. Bye-bye. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our next guest, who I am so excited. I've been in Watertown now. This is my second day. And Jan Zimmerman is an RN, and she's been in the field of nursing for 30 years. And part of that time, she's been with Heritage Homes Assisted Living and Memory Care um, here in Watertown, um, and they opened back in 2010. Uh, Jan brings a wide range of nursing experiences from pediatrics to geriatrics, um, medical surgery care to psychiatric services um, and hospitals to home health care. So just a really nice, broad, strong strength in terms of care. She is a trained instructor in dementia care, and she's been a speaker at multiple conferences and workshops covering topics like dementia and medications and alternative medical therapies. Um, One of the things that she says is that there is a genuine sense of caring and being person-centered here at Heritage. Our goal is to help each person feel that Heritage Homes is their home and find the comfort 
and peace each person deserves in this stage of life journey. Um, part of her favorite part of the day is when residents stop by her office just to talk and, uh, you know, or when she can go out and um, mingle with them. She says they have so much to teach and share. Jan lives in Watertown with her husband and her children and grandchildren keep her very busy. Um, but she still manages to get a little time in for her reading and her knitting and her handicraft. So, Dan, I, I'm just so thrilled to have you on the show. How are you doing this morning? I am doing very well, and thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Well, I'm I'm very excited to have you here. I'm excited to be in Watertown. Um, for those of you that don't know, um, Heritage Homes, along with the Lutheran Home Association, is going to be rolling out a dementia-friendly um, and a dementia-aware community this evening, which I'm lucky to be the keynote speaker at. And tomorrow they are going to have their first memory cafe. So lots and lots uh, going on um, for for you in the coming uh, coming day here and then in the coming month. So, Jan, what attracted your organization uh, to start a memory cafe? Uh, we really started to see the need. Um, people have a tendency to isolate when the diagnosis of dementia comes along. Uh, we were getting calls. Um, somebody would hear I worked at Heritage Homes and worked in the memory cafe, and they would just open up and start pouring out their heart, and they didn't know what to do and where to go, and some didn't want to have their loved one exposed to the stigma that still exists out there with somebody with dementia. And so a lot of the things they would do together as couples, something as simple as going out for coffee or going out for a meal, they stopped doing. And we really wanted to create an environment that they could go out and a husband and a wife, a mother and son or daughter, husband, could go out, spend some time together and not worry that they might say the wrong thing, uh, do the wrong thing, because there were others there who were dealing with the same situation. And so we wanted to create an environment that people would feel safe going out and that they could reconnect not only with themselves but with the community as well. Which makes a lot of sense. The need is just so, so huge. Um, and I, I think um, it's going to be something that the, the town and the community really embraces. Now, you're also decided to launch a dementia-aware and dementia-friendly community in Watertown. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, and and what are the plans um, to kick this off? Maybe talk a little bit about the the event itself and then where you go in the future. Yeah, um, we know that there's a huge need in this area. Uh, there are 110,000 diagnosed cases of dementia in Wisconsin alone, and it's only going to be growing rather than a shrinking. And we still have got a culture where we hide the fact that a person is living with dementia. Uh, they don't want 
the pity, they're afraid of friends falling away if they know about it. They're afraid of maybe losing their jobs, et cetera, for that. And what we wanted to do is create a more open, accepting community where they can still continue to participate and be a vital part of the community. They still, somebody living with dementia has so much to offer, um, experience and knowledge, et cetera. And so we want to really decrease the fear out there. Um, people are afraid of the unknown. They don't know how to communicate with somebody uh, who may have problems verbally communicating, may have um, some behaviors that, you know, they're standing there and they're confused. Uh, they may do yelling because they're frustrated and they don't know how else to communicate. And so we looked around and we thought we have to do something different. And we went online and we saw a lot of the work that's being done in the U.K. And we thought this is the direction we want to go. But heritage homes can't do it by themselves. It has to be a community. We have to empower the community to open themselves up to being more aware of maybe some of the needs that are different from the general population. And so we want to get businesses involved with doing training with their staff on how they can feel more comfortable working with somebody with dementia, serving them, uh, simple behavior changes that they can make so that the person doesn't feel so overwhelmed, um, going to a restaurant and giving them limited choices, um, having uh, menus that they can point to pictures to choose, simple things like that that can make a difference. Uh, we want businesses to be involved, but more importantly, we want community members to be involved. We want those living with dementia to be involved because it is their community, and we will need to learn from the experts. And I may know a lot about assisted living. I may know a lot about dementia, but I'm not personally living it. I need the experience of somebody living with dementia, either um, having the disease themselves or being a supporter of somebody with dementia. I need their expertise. I need their ability to share what they know with us for that. And so... We looked around and decided now is the time. Uh, there's no reason to wait for it. And so we tonight are having a Dementia Aware uh, event, which so excited to have you speak. Um, you've got so much experience and education, knowledge that you can share, and I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, but that will be tonight to kind of let the community know what the uh, coalition is about and why we feel it's important and what we are asking them to do uh, to become part of it. Uh, we are planning on doing um, education sessions. Uh, this isn't a one-time event. Um, this is going to be an ongoing uh, for years and years and years. Um, but how do we get the training out to them? We're going to be doing some live training sessions for those who want to attend in person. We will also be doing written materials, newsletters, 
so that any employee can be trained no matter where they're located. And then we are opening our first session of the Memory Cafe um, tomorrow at 10 o'clock, and you are so graciously consented to be there to help us launch this endeavor. Uh, but again, this is something that <clears throat> it's community, and we want to empower them to uh, take control of this and make it what they need it to be. Well, I, I just um, I'm so honored to be working with Heritage Homes and the Lutheran Home Association in doing this, and I I have just absolutely you know I love the passion that you guys are are tackling this with, and the commitment. I mean, you really see the big picture and the need, um, even with your coalition, you understand this is so much bigger than your organization. And to really be a force to be reckoned with, you know, we've got to pull everybody in and um, and get that buy-in and, you know, that that takes time and work to develop. Everybody just doesn't say, sign me up, you know, overnight. Um, everyone's service of what's it going to take and what do they have to do and you know, tapping into people's expertise and, you know, where their pieces of passion really lie um, to really make things come alive and and move forward. And so it's going to be, um, it's going to be a lot, a lot of fun. And I can't tell you, today alone I've gotten four people contacting me wanting to know more about becoming dementia-friendly um, and getting involved. And so I'll be following up. I'm getting back to people but telling them I really don't even have time to talk with them <laughs> until I, I <laughs> land back at home because we're, we're pretty blessed with, uh, with our schedules and stuff. So um, very, very exciting time. And, um, you know, at the event tonight, I mean, we'll be – Talking, I'll be doing a little bit of education and background about it, and um, but the goal is to really get more businesses signed up. You've already have some that are committed because um, you've been running around town talking with people and and asking them to to sign on and, and come aboard, which is really exciting. I was talking with Norm McNamara, you know, the man behind all of this over in the UK. And he said their um, Corbet is now over 600 businesses um, oh, have, have bought into the concept. And so this is this is exciting stuff, and this is something every community should be looking at, big or small. Um, again, it's not about being perfect. It's not about making sure that you have everybody's consent before you start. You just need to start. You know, you need to get this conversation rolling. That's it. I'm sure we're going to make mistakes along the way. Um, but as I say, that's how we learned. I know a mm -hmm. lot of what I know is because I made the mistakes and learned not to make those mistakes. But when you get people together who really care about it and have a passion for it, mistakes or not, things are going to get done. Um, it I can only see the good coming from this. Um, I also see it moving out into the other communities. I've been contacted from several people in other counties uh, who are interested in what we're doing and maybe moving forward with it themselves. So mm -hmm. I see a lot of collaboration 
down the road for that um, so that we can eventually, you know, move statewide and then eventually nationwide. Uh, it really mm-hmm. is a global need. It isn't just a Watertown need. It's global. And we want to join others who are making this great attempt to do what is right and to create the culture that we need. And while we are really focusing on dimension, it is across the board acceptance of everyone who has different needs than what you and I have. So I see this being very positive in many areas across the board. I agree. I agree. It really is a uh, an acceptance and a tolerance um, for all, you know, all of us in humanity. It, you know, yeah, how do it's we an want understanding. Mhm. It truly, it truly is. Well, it's going to be very, very exciting um, and a lot of fun. I know you've got the press is going to be out there today doing an interview and following one of your residents, which is great. And yesterday we did a bunch of table stuff, and um, I know you've got all kinds of things lined up, and tonight we'll be doing the the social and then the um, kind of educational keynote piece and getting more signatures. So I'm very proud of you guys, and I just feel so blessed to be involved. Um, Thank you. um, You guys are making great, great headway um, here in the U.S., and it's grabbing a lot of people's attention. There's a lot of conversations going on, um, you know, just because we've been pushing this out. And even though it might not be in the national news yet, um, they still haven't quite figured out, I think, how to deal with positive um, occurrences. That's <laughs> true. That's true. They, like, they tend a lot of focus on the tragedy, you know, and the crisis and and stuff. So mm-hmm. it's like, that's okay. You know, we'll just do this on a grassroots level and and um, let it grow um, like it has been, and keep keep pushing pushing forward the importance of uh, of this disease and making people um, live purposeful and feel purposeful and connected and love. Mm-hmm. And that's really you know bottom line what it's all about. Um, the purple angels people will be able to display as as part of their business if they sign up, um, which is again the global symbol for dementia, which is awful exciting too. Um, that's a that's a really uh, I think a neat, neat piece to to think what you're doing locally is something that's globally um, connected, and um, the picture is just so so far. Any last-minute comments at all, Jan, that you want to make? Um, I'm just very um, excited about this. Um, It's got potential to really affect so many people's lives and give them the empowerment that they need to go forward and to be a part of the community again and to remain a part of the community um, and the collaboration with Alzheimer Speaks is just unbelievable blessing to us. Um, you have got the ability to touch so many people's lives and to reach so many people. Uh, just with that ad that you had on your or announcement that you had on your website, 
we've had people contacting us from Georgia and Texas um, wondering about it and what we're doing. So the ability, as I said, to um, partnership with you has just been a huge blessing to us, and I thank you for that. Oh, well, it's it's my pleasure. I just uh, I added onto the website um, a little welcome from Norms that I'll play tonight, but I put it out there for everyone else to be able to see too, welcoming um, Watertown um, to, to the aware and dementia friendly um, community, which is you know he's kind of the father of all, all of this. Yeah. You know, it's just it's it's amazing how we're so interconnected and. And it, it's so fun to work collaboratively um, instead of in competition, you know, to That's to good. work for the greater good. There's just so much beauty in that. And I think, um, I hate to say it, but I think in in business we've lost that. And we need to get that back because it, it, it just makes it so much easier to work as a team instead of always opposing somebody. And, uh, you know. Yeah, Heritage Homes may have been the ones to kind of get this on the road, but it isn't just us. Um, it's all the other um, facilities around here. Um, they all have um, dementia touching so many of the residents, so many of the family members that they have. Uh, is businesses, it's the community. I go out and the number of people that said, oh, my mom has dementia, my grandmother had dementia, you know, my uncle, my friend, everybody is touched one way or the other. So we may be the ones to say, let's start doing something about it, but it is a community that is going to band together. It's not us versus them. It's how are we going to be doing this. Mm-hmm. Which is, is a, a very, very fun fun thing. Um, tonight I will be handing out kind of a resource with two for people of um, just a, some resources of people living with Alzheimer's and, and dementia who are making a difference, some some. Um, care partners who are doing the same, and then just uh, some information on clinical trials and organizations um, and so forth. And I think what I'll probably end up doing is adding this list into um, my tools uh, here when I land in a, in a day or two. I don't know if I'll get it up before then. Um, then you can never catch your breath. I know I get home Wednesday night and then I, I leave again Thursday morning and and I'll come back late Friday night, Saturday morning, and stuff. But you know, it's all it's all good. Um, it's all good stuff, and together we can make huge, huge changes. So, you know, if there's others out there that are interested in learning how to do what Watertown um, is doing, you know, um, feel free to reach out to Jan, or uh, feel free to reach out to myself, and we can talk about the Memory Cafe and you know, becoming dementia aware and dementia friendly and. And how should we structure that for your own community? Because every community is going to be a little bit different. Um, and I think that's what makes it work is when we tweak it um, to be specific to your needs and your community and your passion. Um, and that's also what makes it so much fun. So, Jan, if people want to get a hold of you, they can go to um, myheritagehomes.org. 
Um, or sure. can they contact you through the Lutheran Home Association? Or is it best to go you, through? MyHeritageHomes.org is the best website. If you go to the Lutheran Home Association, uh, TLHA.org, you will find a link to Heritage Homes there. Uh, people are more than welcome to contact me by phone. Um, my number is 920-567-2003. Or you can email me, Zimmerman Z-I-M-M-E-R-M-A-N, at T-L-H-A. Org. Wonderful. Well, Dan, I will see you in a little teeny bit in about an hour, so I'll be heading your way, and we'll get off and running <laughs> with the events for today. So, again, thank you for all all that you are doing. And, again, I want to thank um, Evan and Esther for being guests with us again uh, today on Alzheimer's Speaks. And know that you too can make a difference. You know, um, be collaborative. Join forces with us. We would love to see more of these um, come to be. And, uh, you know, we can do that. They're doing it all the time over in the U.K. Um, There's no reason the U.S. and other countries uh, can't step it up a little bit here too and launch these and and get a model that that works. In the meantime, um, remember... It's about focusing on progress, not perfection. And when we engage those with dementia, focus on three simple things that your memory chip teaches us. Are they safe? Are they happy? And are they pain-free? You can get that tool at alzheimerspeaks.com and just go to the free tool section. You'll have to um, register first, but then you'll be able to go in and grab that Again, I want to thank our sponsors, um, ADI, Music First with Coral Health, the Louis Body Association, the Alzheimer's Studies Group, if you're looking for a trial puzzle with me, the Association of Central Temporal uh, Degeneration and the National Aphasia Association, uh, the Adaptive Pro K-Game, Jiminy Wicked, of course, the Purple Angel Project, and I would be nowhere without custom-made design, my webmasters, <laughs> and, of course, you, our audience. Um, your likes, your clicks, your shares make a huge difference. So keep up the great work, share the knowledge, pass it on, and we'll talk soon. Have a wonderful week, and we'll give you an update on how the event goes this evening and tomorrow. Bye now. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what can be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.